Welcome to Reflection as a Service. My name is Paul Merrill. I'm here with my co-host, James Jeffers. Hello. And we are the podcast about software engineering and entrepreneurship. We're a couple of guys who are trying to figure out the entrepreneurship part of that, and we've kind of figured out the software engineering part along the years. Right, James? Yep. Yep. That's, Boy, I'm boring you already. <laughs> what a great show this We're, is going to be. <laughs> we are fellow travelers oh, right. on this dark and stormy path. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right, cool. Well, um, you know, welcome back. We're glad to have you. As always, uh, I just want to mention a couple things up front. We t- Tonight, we're going to talk about a, c- a couple different items. Number one, we're going to talk about when not to test your software applications. When not to test your software applications. So hopefully, I've grabbed your attention with that. And the second item is um, what you need to do in order to get your software consultancy started. So these are kind of the logistical, pragmatic kind of things uh, getting your EIN set up and things like that. We're going to go through a, a list of them and James and I are going to talk about each one. So we'll start off with the software engineering part of this, which is when not to test, and then we'll get into the other business part. So um, looking forward to this. James, has it been a good week? Yeah, it has been a good week. Uh, kind of winding down uh, stuff here in town before we take off for Florida for the Christmas holiday. So this today has been all about like packing bags and getting clothes ready and all that kind of good stuff. So you messed this up, man. See, I'm not going to release this until like January 1 or something. So people are going to be like, oh, man, this is a week old. <laughs> okay, so a couple of business items. I'm going to be talking at TriTog about uh, and looking for your help in talking about data strategies on the 27th of January. In March, I'll be at Tiska, the Tiska conference in Chapel Hill and look forward to seeing everybody there. If you haven't heard about it, go on to the go looking for Tiska online and you'll find out about the conference in March. Um, we want to ask you for your reviews on iTunes and SoundCloud, and I also want to mention how good that last episode was with James and his wife, Mickey, talking about their new project that just launched, digitalobit.com. So that was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, I also wanted to bring up, uh, I'm going to be headed out to MicroConf in April 2016, and I went a couple years ago, uh, and I didn't go last year. I kind of felt like the first year I went... I met a lot of really great people, but I felt like most of the material was uh, a lot more for folks that were more advanced on the path of entrepreneurship than I was. And so I, I little, deliberately didn't go last year. Uh, but this year, I feel like I'm going to get a lot more out of it. So I'm, I'm headed back to Vegas, and I'm wondering if there are any people out there who are listening to our podcast. Um, if, uh, if you're interested, uh, I'd like to meet you too, and maybe we can meet face-to-face out in Vegas. Yeah, that's really cool. And you've also got our next guest set up, right? Uh, that's the plan. Excellent. Uh, Josh Anderson. Josh Anderson. And he is from Dude Solutions. Is that right? Dude Solutions. That's right. Excellent. So I'm really looking forward to talking and getting to meet Josh and hope you, hope you guys will join us for that. So let's do this episode nine. So when not to test, James? So- oh, you should always test. All the time. <laughs> Everything gets tested. <laughs> well, that's, that's, the, that's the choir boy response, right? I mean, isn't this... Uh, pretty much I'm preaching to the choir here, I think. Um, Always right. test, but aren't there some times when you don't? I mean, we, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, and it seems to me that there are times. I know for myself, if I'm sitting down and writing a prototype of something, um, if I want to do something really quick and dirty, the only testing I might do is just looking at the output of the code that I put out there and changing the inputs to see if something's worked. Yeah, and I, I think it's like if you don't know uh, what the value of it is, or, you know, they're really, it's personal value, right? Then, then, 
if you don't test it, then you know the downside is you're, it's just you, right? You're the only person who's going to suffer if it's not what you thought it was. Um, but if you're writing it for other people, people that are paying you money, then I think it's like, oh, okay, and suddenly testing becomes uh, a way to uh, – what's the saying? Like software – when you test software – it doesn't improve the quality. It just reveals it, right? So if, if you've got a product that you, you know that someone's going to pay you money for, you want to make sure it's a high-quality product, well, the only way to, to know that for sure on a consistent basis is to write tests for it. And I know for myself, you know, back in the day when I started figuring out about TDD and all the wondrous uh, tools you could use to, to write unit tests, like I was like, oh, i got to write tests for everything all the time. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't have a strictly speaking, a testing background. I came from more the uh, developer side of the house. So once I kind of figured out, hey, I could use these tools, I, you know, I wanted to test everything all the time. And I'm sure that some of the, the guys from this, the test side of the house were like, well, you know, you got you to gotta figure out what, what it is you want to test and how do you want to test it. Like there's a, there's a, there's a hierarchy of value and the software is going to be produced and you want to make sure that the highest value stuff, that's going to get your attention before the low value stuff. Right, right. And I, I guess talking about the value of what you produce, going back to the idea of if you're writing a prototype, uh, to me, a prototype is something that you throw away. Um, that rarely happens. Generally, you write a prototype and somebody wants to use it and make you change it. But uh, the, the original concept of a prototype and that pattern is you're writing code that is throwaway code and you will come back and do it right the next time. Um, so for that, there's, there's really no value in it except for seeing an idea come to fruition in front of you on, for me on, on the computer writing software. Um, so if it does what I think it should do, then yeah, that's, that's as far as I'm going to test it. The, the other ideas that I had, um, and that we were talking about about this is if no one has, if the feedback that you're giving due to testing falls on deaf ears, in other words, if nobody cares what, what you find out, right? I mean, that seems like, and I know that that happens a lot and it's not practical to just stop what you're doing if you're a QA engineer in um, some large company and nobody's listening to what you're doing. That's not really practical. I'm not telling you don't test at that point if that's your job because you'll lose your job, right? Right, James? Right. right. But, um, but I mean, in a lot of situations, it, it seems like... Uh, you know, you can go out and do a lot of hard work and come up with a lot of great feedback and people may or may not listen to it. That's never happened to us. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. And we were kind of talking about when, when not to test. And I guess there's like, also the idea of a small company versus a big company and the, the amount of testing that you do in one versus the other. Right. And I remember I was talking to somebody and they were talking about how, um, it was somebody we both bumped into at a at a local um, uh, convention, and uh, you know he he had been in a smaller kind of a startup environment and had gone on to work with Microsoft and then you know eventually worked for another startup and that got bought by SaaS, and um, you know he was describing like the levels of uh, ritual and process that you would see at the startup. It was kind of minimal, right? Uh, and once you get into the the big corporation environment, suddenly the amount of like a ritual and process just explodes. And he, he actually made a pretty good point. He said, basically, once you get into a really large company and your revenue stream is counted in the billions, you know, that's when people get super defensive about preserving what is. So, you know, the, the function of all this ritual and process, it serves the function of kind of trying to basically pour amber over everything and making sure that 
things don't move too fast and nothing gets broken. Like you want to preserve the, the valuable treasure that you've got inside the castle. So are, are you saying that the ritual and process is testing? Um, I, th- I think more accurately, I would think that the ritual and process basically just ensures the sort of testing that's going to go on. Okay. Like it's going to be, it's going to be like more top to bottom. You've got a whole lot more test cases and probably more test cases than are actually useful, right? Cause you're, you've, you've got enough time and effort and resources to, to get all, th- all the different scenarios pretty much covered. And you don't, you don't want to deviate from that, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to be the, the weak link in that chain that's constantly dragging along that, you know, that wagon you you want to make sure that it's it's always going to work and everything is is set you know for as long as that that enterprise is making money but you know for like a startup if you haven't gotten to that point in your startup where you actually have figured out what's like what your business actually is like that's a whole different scenario even from a startup that's like getting starting to get traction and they've got some customers uh you know they may not have that full market adoption place set right so what what are you going to test as a brand new startup could be just like you said like you're just going to kind of poke around um maybe your tests aren't really software tests they're more like cost de- development tests right uh like you're going to go out and you're going to drive some traffic at a landing page you know it's kind of like a test of your software it's just, just your software is just like a sales proposition um in the form of a web page but then suddenly as you get further along that line uh and suddenly you're like well we need to start automating the product that we're delivering right and suddenly you've got something behind that landing page and can you, your tests suddenly have to make sure that the things that you're writing to support that that product you know as the software gets deeper okay you know now we've got units of software that are working together and you've got the need for integration tests um and then go ahead Paul. you're about to say something oh no i was interrupting go ahead and then you know it's like okay well yeah at that point it's like We've got integration tests. Like, does the whole thing work? And then I think the line gets a little fuzzy because, you know, as a developer, if I'm writing software, um, I know for myself, like, if, if I, even if no one else really cares, um, a unit test isn't just about verifying the behavior. For me, it's like forcing um, better design as I'm writing the code. Yeah, that's the way it is for me too. Yeah. And so I think, you know, almost by accident you see a developer as he's writing unit tests you know it's concurrent with writing the code and so when the developer is more or less like okay i think i'm at a point where someone else can use my code if they've written a lot of unit tests of course you get the side benefit well now we have a regression framework right right um and that kind of goes along with it and for me that's especially if i'm working for somebody else or working with somebody else like for me it's a lot less of a of a maybe um because if i'm if i'm having to write code for someone else's consumption, I, for me, it's like, oh, okay, it's valuable at least to, the, to that one other person. Well, it's right? respectful too. Like to me, that's yeah. that's respect. Like don't don't hand me a bunch of code that you don't even know if it works. I mean, that's just not right. <laughs> I don't know. And then, and then hand me code that I can't go in and verify whether or not it works. That's the other part of it, right? Um, and I can't see your intention of what you're trying to accomplish. If I have unit tests there, at least I can tell what the intention was behind it, hopefully. Yeah, unless you've got, I guess I guess it's possible to write really bad unit tests. Oh, of course, right? yeah, yeah. But I, th- I mean, is it is it ever a case that there's test code that's so bad that it's worse than not having any test code? Oh, I think so, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I mean, 
for me, I see that mostly within automated testing, of course, because of, of my, that's what we do, right? I mean, that's what I do is automated testing. Right, um, right. So, I mean, I, I see it a lot with, um, for instance, with companies who have written a large suite of tests or um, had someone else write a large suite of tests, and then I come in and uh, all of the all of the continuous integration environments are red all the time. They're all broken all the time. Like, yeah. yeah, I'd rather not have the code than have the perception issue there. I mean, and it's not a perception issue. It's a major issue, right? I mean, if things are red all the time, you, you got to figure out what that is because you can't, what, what you want to do, what I want to do with automated testing and with continuous integration is create a, an environment of credibility and confidence and when you have test cases that are breaking or not passing for one reason or the other, you undermine that. It just doesn't work. Um, and, and when it's a QA environment, a QA group that's writing automated test cases and having them run on continuous integration, and then there's a separate development group to some degree, uh, you can really have a major issue because already if, if you're uh, most software engineers, most developers are going to sit down and they're going to think that if code is written by someone other than a traditional software engineer, it should be looked at with um, a fine grain comb. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that's true? Like uh, the not is it like kind of like a non-invented here syndrome where I, like no one else's solution could be as good as the one we're going to come up with. So we need to be suspicious of it and not as trusting. And therefore, it's going to get a lot more scrutiny than, say, if the guy I've been sitting next to for, you know, two years has written it. Maybe, yeah, maybe so. Maybe something like that. I, I think it's, um, we, how often is it that you have someone with a, a background in software engineering writing automated tests? I mean, it's, it's very, very rare. Um, I don't know. I, I find that most folks that are doing automated testing are, um, have come up in that world. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. It's just that they're, there's a set of experiences missing. And I, I believe that automated testing is in itself a software development experience. It's something, it's a, it's a software development activity. Um, and you need all the sk skills of a software engineer to do automated testing well. Um, so when we're doing that and we're not coming from a background of software engineering, or we haven't gone out to try to learn as much as we can about the process of software engineering, um, and developed our skills as software engineers, it's going to be much more difficult to put together a, a piece of code that's going to work reliably. And I, I think, don't, don't you think most software engineers know that when they're looking at automated tests? Like if, I don't know, for, for instance, if you went and picked out a, if a QA department went out and picked up a uh, record and playback device, um, developers are going to look at that and say, well, it's going to be flaky, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and the people doing it don't have the background of a software engineer, most likely that's going to cause other issues or I don't know. Am I, am I going off on a tangent here? No, I think you're right. And I, I, and I think part of it is like um, the old saying from, was it, I think Larry Wall, the guy who is the, the creator of Perl. Is it Larry Wall? I hope that's right. Um, he was like, you know, what are the attributes of a great programmer? And like one of them was like laziness. <laughs> it's like it's like a really you know somebody who's really in tune with being lazy is going to look at uh, a lot of these you know automated software testing frameworks where you kind of like interact with the UI and record something and they're going to think that's great until we change how that that layout is is generated right and then all of a sudden you have to go back and re-record everything and I know the 
the lazy programmer in me just kind of curls up and dies because you're like, oh, I have to do all that work over again. And so I'm always thinking of ways like, oh, you know, how could we write something that's, that's flexible enough to withstand, you know, the, these changes and still provide good feedback about the software under test? You yeah, know? absolutely. And, and just kind of, I wanted to follow up on one of my comments there. If you're in automated testing and you are an automation engineer, I'm not saying that there's no hope because you haven't got software engineering background. What I'm saying is there is always room to improve every single client that I walk into James. And I, I'm sure this is the case with you and every relationship that I have, there's something to learn. Sometimes it's technical. Sometimes it's not. I think, um, as a software, as a culture, automated testers, automation engineers, we could really focus more on learning the craft of software and make what we're doing so much better. Right. Right. Um, so, sorry, I just wanted to catch myself there before I, I went off the rails too far with that. But you know, the, the other thing is when not to test, we're only talking about functional testing here and you know, you still have scalability testing, you have pin testing, you have performance testing. Um, and there are times to do those things and times not to do those things. Yeah. So, I guess, I don't know, do you feel like we've answered that question about when not to test? I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know the answer. Do you, do you feel like you can add more to it? Um, you know, other than, I, I guess, I guess unless there's like a clear, a clear investment from other people about the software in question, um, you know, Maybe you want to hold off or at least discuss, okay, like, is this worth testing? Maybe we can skip the test part here. Um, and I think just if you ask that question, you know, even if the answer is 99% of the time, yeah, we should. Um, if you're going to catch at least a few cases where you don't have to, then maybe that's just effort saved. It better spend elsewhere. Sure. And I guess the other thing that we should say is uh, we should include the risk. Um, so, I mean, if... Uh... It's one thing if you're writing a small prototype, a hello world of some kind on your own machine and nobody's ever going to see it. It's a whole other thing if you're writing, um, oh, I don't know, like an antivirus program, <laughs> right? And you just want to put something out there and see if it works, I guess. I mean, that would be um, a play. Or, or if, you're, if you're doing something regulatory or if you're in something where people's lives are affected in, uh, if, if fatality is a possibility, um, I think regulatory environments are ones where you don't really get the chance to decide whether or not testing is uh, valuable, even if you're a small startup in some cases. Yeah, I mean, if you have a regulatory overhead, I guess there's really no escaping it. Like if you're if you're working with medical equipment or you know having to do uh, something having to do with the FDA, I have to imagine like you don't have a choice. Sure. Like there's there's going to be something imposed on you that you just can't get out of, even if you want to. So. Sure. Mil military contractors or defense contractors, I would think, would be very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Or space shuttles. Uh, you, yeah, space shuttles. Right. Um, those are very important. Um, and did they did they land a SpaceX on its uh, on on the? the uh, I think I read that Elon Musk had said that uh, their Monte Carlo simulations indicated that tomorrow would be a ten percent better chance, so they they're going to hold off. Oh, so so they have not successfully landed one on a barge yet, but there's one coming up very soon. Oh, I mean, is that's that what a question? Um, there was supposed to be a launch or a landing today. I guess there would be a launch. You got to launch before you land, right? <laughs> we just we just got to fling it up in the air and see what happens. Um, land first technology by SpaceX. <laughs> right. We've cut out the most expensive part of space flight. Right. We just landed. Land <laughs> uh, I think I, I, 
my what I saw on Twitter was that they were supposed to have a, long, a landing today, and then they decided, and hey, we're going to hold off until tomorrow because it's a better chance. So okay, but the last one they did, if the last one that I know about, it tried to land on the barge. It got very close and maybe touched it, but kind of didn't quite land on it. Is that right? Um, you know, I, I think I saw a couple of films somewhere online where it looked like it was like, yeah, almost, almost, no, not quite. Just didn't quite make it. Well, you know, it's kind of like, um, like any, you know, any new adventure, you're going to have a few, oops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that. exactly. And, exactly. you know, this is like a, what, a rocket filled with like, um, is it like frozen hydrogen or something like that? I don't know. Yeah. I think he was saying that they have to chill the, uh, the, the, uh, reactor, the, um, is it the reactant? The reaction I, mass down to a certain point to, because they can get more of the fuel into the container inside the uh, the rocket. So, hey, it's only several tons of – several hundred tons of frozen hydrogen right, with, a, with right. a giant bomb at the bottom basically. <laughs> Love, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so. that's something. I'm sure those guys test every bit of that stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think – yeah, so I guess to sum up, I mean, I, I think there are times to test when you go back to look at um, – performance scalability and pen testing if you're looking at pen testing if you've got if you if you're if you've got a site that has valuable information on it you're probably going to want to do that at some point if uh, performance is an issue if if you're something like uh, the without getting political if if you're healthcare.gov you might want to <laughs> do some performance testing or scalability yeah. testing before you launch i mean that would be ideal um, but apparently that did not happen so, um, so, so things like that, I mean, there are times when not to test, I mean, if you're launching a, a small product, you don't need to do performance testing, I would think, right, James, cause you're going to ramp up users over time. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking about like all the systems that you're like, well, you know, it's good enough for 20 people in the room to use, just add a bunch of more machines and everything should be fine. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of those, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that never really works out. <laughs> so many there's so many points of you know it's like all the all those points of interaction and one of the great disasters happen they happen when the impossible lines up in a bunch of concurrent you know interacting systems and then it all comes crashing down so yeah like if money's on the line you know it yeah, yeah like test it <laughs> figure out <laughs> That's, that's all my, we're trying to say. Test that's it. my <laughs> advice. But I guess you know the question is when when would you not do it? I don't know. Like if you're at the point where performance is an issue, and you're thinking like, uh, you know, this has got to scale. I mean, if you're actually really having to deal with with scale, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't see how you could not. I yeah. mean, not test things. At least, at least figure out what your boundaries are, right? Yeah, what yeah. Your limits are. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the business conversation. I think I think that was pretty good, and I, I appreciate you walking through that with me. Once again, you're listening to Reflection as a Service, the podcast about software engineering and entrepreneurship. Once again, I am Paul Merrill from Beaufort, Fairmont, and James Jeffers here is joining me from Code Providence. He's my co-host. Um, let's see. So we had some questions from some friends, I believe. I know I, I talked with a friend a while back, a couple of weeks ago, and um, she's just started up her consulting business. And... She had some some things come up as we were talking that she hadn't done that would be on a checklist if I were to make one um, about how to start up a, a small consulting business. And so, James, we, we kind of talked and came up with a few of these, and uh, some of them are more important than others, but this is by no means robust. This is by no means complete, but um, 
these are the ones that came off the top of my head. So uh, first of all, I, I would do very, very little if I didn't have any money coming in. But once you get that first check or that first payment, um, you need a checking account because you need to keep your business money separate from your personal money. There are a lot of reasons for that. If you've organized your business as um, a separate entity, you can't commingle your personal funds and your business funds. Like the that's IRS right. apparently doesn't have a big sense of humor about that. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You have to be very clear about what's income and what's not income um, and what's what the business is paying for and what the person is paying for. Um, so that's why you need a, a separate account at minimum when you get started. Uh, if you just want the name of your business, you can go usually to your local government and get a DBA, which is called a doing doing business as DBA. And that's just a form that you fill out to be able to um, to be able to be referred to as something else. So if I, if I were doing business as a sole proprietor and I wanted to be called, um, you know, I don't know, I can't think Zeta max. I, I can't think of a good name right now. Um, then that's how I would do that with a DBA. Um, I would get a business license pretty early. As soon as you start making money, would you agree with that? James, a business license, you, you have to have one to do business in, in most places. I guess it depends on where you live. Um, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, if, if your state or local government says you got to have it, I mean, there's no sense in poking the bear and right. tempting fate, right? <laughs> right? Go ahead and get it. Right. Um, um, I know where I am. I'm in Cary, North Carolina, and here you have to have a business license if you're doing business. And you need one in each place where you do business. So wherever you have a place of business, I believe, is the way that that's worded. But check with your, check with your regulations. Yeah, I guess that brings up the other point. Like, if, you're, if you are if you're serious about um, bringing any kind of money, I think it really, and forgive me if this jumps ahead, but you really should talk to uh, somebody who can step you through uh, the different organizations that you can yeah. you can take advantage of. Like I was really fortunate, there was a local bookkeeper who a couple of my uh, software consultant buddies said, hey, go check out this person, she'll, she'll get you set up. And she did a fantastic job of basically laying out the different scenarios, S-Corp. Uh, C Corp, LLC, uh, you know, uh, you know, sole what, proprietor, sole right. proprietor. Like, what what were the scenarios? Uh, given how much money you know I was expecting to bring in, uh, and if I did each one, what would be the tax implications? And she made it super clear. Right. And so you, I think you def, you definitely need someone like that to you know have a conversation with them and and get the lowdown. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and you can do a lot of research online, and there's a lot of stuff out there that can help you understand it. One thing that will not help you understand it is reading IRS documents. Yeah. <laughs> they even even the graphic novel versions. It's, it's not, terrible. They're it's awful. Terrible. Um, so, uh, I guess I guess the other thing that we should explain for people who are just getting started out is is what a business is. And and so if you go out and you do business outside of being an employee, if you go out and you sell um, apples that you picked off of your apple tree to your neighbors. You are what's called a sole proprietor, and there's no, there's nothing you have to do to become a sole proprietor. You don't have to fill any forms, anything else. You are just declared to be a sole proprietor because you made money outside of being an employee. Is that is that the way that you understand it, James? That's the way I understand it. Right. And again, Paul and I are not lawyers. Please consult a lawyer. Right, right. right. We are <laughs> like, not legal advisors. Please this, don't. And this podcast should not be considered as legal advice. Right, right. We're merely we giving you suggestions. Can and, you say that like quicker and lower voice? And we can do one of those car commercial well, disclaimers. Do not consider anything on this podcast as nice. legal advice. Nice. <laughs> so, Past performance um, is no indication of, you know, 
Yeah, gotcha. So, <laughs> so yeah, so you're a sole proprietor if you do that. Any any kid that's gone out and done a lemonade stand, they're a sole proprietor, and that is an actual des- designation at the federal level uh, from the IRS. And so uh, there are certain um, there are certain implications of that with regard to your income. You need to start paying quarterly taxes if you make income as a sole proprietor. Um, you can file for a business like an LLC and still be considered a sole proprietor uh, at the federal level because you might be a single member um, LLC or an LLC is a little bit weird because it's only at the state level. At the federal level, you either have sole proprietor or a corporation. Um, And so you might be an S corp at the federal level, but an LLC with your, with your state. I don't mean to make that complicated but it's just, it just is Um, a a corporation is either. And my, my understanding is there, there might, maybe there are more than these, but I know of the S corporation and C corporation and the S corporation. I believe you, maybe you can tell me more about this, James, that there's pass through taxation, the C corp, the corporation gets taxed first. And then the income that comes into an individual like yourself gets taxed again. Is that right? Yeah. That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, so C corps are usually for when you have a lot of different shareholders. So it's probably, if you're starting out a small consultancy or small business, it's probably not the thing for you. Um, things, these are, these are companies like, you know, Google and Apple and, and whatever. These are huge, large corporations. Um, the type of entity you declare as also has some impact on how much liability you can accept and who accepts liability. So as a sole proprietor, the smallest entity of business there's no separation between you and your business. So anything that you do as a business, you're liable for as a, as a person. But once you start stepping that up, whether it's an LLC or S corp or a C corp, then whatever happens as the business you do as a business and they can't, for instance, if someone sued your business and you're an S corp, they can't come after your personal, uh, in your, your personal means or your personal things. Right, James, is that how you, yeah, I mean, it's, the point behind incorporating is to shield your personal assets from the business activity. Right, right. Um, so it gives you a little more freedom as a, as a business. Um, the other thing when we start talking about liability, and this is something that uh, came up in my conversation with my friend recently, is that as a – and I'm sorry this is dry. Hopefully those of you who are interested are listening. There, there's no more software engineering talk, so if you want to just drop off now if you're a software engineer you're not interested – Please, by all means, do and, and uh, give us a good recommendation for telling you you could do that. Um, <laughs> a good review on iTunes. Um, but, uh, yeah, so one of the things about this is liability, right? So we talked a little bit about liability. And, of course, you're shielded from your personal assets being taken in the course of a lawsuit that comes against your company if you're a certain entity type. However, there's another shield for liability, and that is insurance. And so for myself, I don't. I, I, in my business, I have a general insurance policy and then a personal a, a professional liability policy and usually you can buy those two things through the same um, agent uh, you can find an agent for small business insurance just about anywhere online uh, they're they're all going to farm it out to one of the bigger uh, companies out there you, you can also do things like workman's comp and so workman's comp comes in when you want a worker to be insured if they were to have an accident on your property or something like that. Um, so for instance, if, if, if you're, if you are a single person company, chances are you do not need workman's comp. The reason is you're not going to sue yourself if something bad happens, right? Is this the way you understand it, James? I've never tried it, but yeah. (laughs) 
You've never tried to sue yourself or you've never tried to get workman's comp? Uh, both. Oh, okay. All right. Well, workman's guess, comp. When, yeah. once you have employees, you need workman's comp most likely because they could get hurt. If they sue your company, then you're liable for that. Um, and, and you, you need a way to be protected. For and, that. and I know Paul, you've, I think you've gone through some of this, but the distinction between an employee and not an employee is what? Okay, so there are. My understanding is that there are there are contractors, and then there are employees in terms of the people who do work for you. And there are several different characteristics that the IRS sets out to determine whether or not an individual is an employee of your company. One of those characteristics is who directs the work. So, for instance, if if uh, if I'm doing work for Google and, and I believe that it's a contractor relationship and we've got a, a document to show that, a contract to show that, um, if they're directing the work, that's one of these things the IRS would say, okay, well, number one, they're directing the work. Number two is something like uh, about materials. So who owns the property? So for instance, do I do the work on my own computer as a contractor or do I do the work on your computer as the company that I'm doing work for. So an employee will do work on a company, their, their employer's machines and they use their, their employer's tools. So that would be another one of those characteristics. Um, I don't remember the rest. Do you set your own hours? I think is one of those. Is that right, James? Um, yeah. I, I seem to recall some of that. Um, and does it also vary by state? I'm, I don't know. I, I'm sure it does. There is a list at the federal level um, in order for the IRS to be able to, to determine this. Uh, there, there may be more at the local level as well. I don't know. And it also seems like once you, once you do take on employees, like the amount of oversight and regulation that you have to contend with, it's it's like an explosion, is it not? It is. It is. And there, there, so then you start getting into things like you have to deal with payroll. And by the way, I tried to do payroll for a while on my own. I did it for about a year, and it it was. Um, too much time out of my pocket. Now, other people might enjoy that kind of thing or may have done it before or whatever, and it's no problem for them, but um, I had to interact with uh, a bunch of different agencies. There was the IRS for a payroll account, I believe, the state, uh, North Carolina, for for an account with them. Um, and then there were you had, a, had to deal with the Social Security Department, and, um, oh, I don't even remember, but there were three or four different things, and then you know, just trying to file it on your own, you go through these forms and I mean, I understand logic. I can read on logic, a, a flow chart and understand how to do something. But if you read through these forms, they are not logical. You can't tell if an or is exclusive or not. Um, it's, it's ridiculous trying to understand how to do this and to get it right. So I made mistakes in that and learned from it. My, my learning on that was go to ADP, um, and <laughs> just pay them what they want. Because if, I was spending multiple hours a month trying to do that. Um, and when I started talking to ADP, it just made sense to, to work with them. So they take care of everything. And then, you know, the other thing with all that kind of stuff, uh, with payroll at least, is you get to the end of the year and you have to rectify any problems that there are. And that comes down to your taxes rectifying them, which means that if you have underestimated any payments, it's coming out of your pocket to pay it back. Uh, so make sure you get all that stuff right. My advice, if you have employees, get somebody else to take care of the payroll, either your accountant or, or your bookkeeper or uh, ADP has a terrific product um, and, and terrific options out there. Um, there are also things with regard to health care once you get an employee, James, or employees. So, um, And I, don't, I do not know the rules with this. The rules that we... The, the rules as 
the general population understands them and as we have all been uh, made aware is that if you have less than I think 30 employees you shouldn't have to get insurance for your employees however there are caveats to that depending on the type of entity business entity that you are and uh, how you personally handle your own insurance so there are implications there and please talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do about it but getting back to some of the more simple things there think one thing you need to do if you are getting serious about this is to get an EIN which is an employee employer identification number and you can get that from the IRS it's usually relatively simple um, I think you can you can go online and do it right James yeah, I seem to recall that when I filed for my um, business paperwork with both the state and federal government, like they they issued an EIN, and so the, I think the, and the EIN basically is like a social security number for your business. That's right. Yep, yep. That's exactly what it is. In fact, a lot of the forms ask either for your social security number or your EIN. Um, one of the things that I forgot to mention with this is that when you start doing business as the most simple entity, a sole proprietor you will start getting 1099s once you do more than i forget what the limit is i i think it's uh what was it i i was thinking it was $600 once you once you charge someone more than $600 in a year and this is another thing to check with your accountant or your yeah. lawyers on um but I, I believe it's it last year i think it was $600 so if if you pay anybody or if anybody pays you more than $600 then they should send you a 1099 at the end of the year and so, like as an employee, you get a W two in the in the early part of the year. Is it which one do you fill out? You fill out the W four and you get the W two, right? Oh, you know what? <laughs> I think that's right. So yeah, yeah, you you get a W two as an employee in order to do your taxes. As a sole proprietor, you should get a ten ninety nine from your client um, that paid you to do work. So the ten is is no different. It's something else that you um, use for your uh, learn figuring out your income taxes with. But um, that's probably a distinction that's worth talking about. And if you have contractors, for instance, if you start doing work, for instance, I I, I had some work done on my website, and because that was over six hundred dollars, I will issue a ten ninety nine to that vendor at the end of the year because he was a contractor as well. Um, always have a contract in place for any work you do. I would say that's, um, you, you have to do that, right, James? I mean, that's something that I would strongly suggest. Um, you can get good contracts from your, you know, make a good connection with a lawyer and get them from them. There are contracts out there from companies like LegalZoom and other companies, um, that you can use. Um, what else here? We talked about types of business. If you're starting a business and you want, you need to name it. You have to have a name. So in some states, like in the state of North Carolina, the Secretary, North Carolina Secretary of State has this terrific site, which is a business registry site. And you can go on and search business names and find out if the name that you want to use for your business has been used in the state of North Carolina. Um, I, I give that site a little bit too much uh, props. It's it's not it's not a great piece of software, but it works very well. Um, I don't know what other states have, but it's good to go out and find out if your the name that you want to use is used. The other things that I would recommend is because we are all so into social media and we all want to have a website and everything else is before you sign up with the government for a particular name, go out and check to see if you can buy that domain name, uh, whatever it is dot com or dot net or whatever you want. Io. Um, there's some really inexpensive ones with the the two the new two letter 
extensions these days, .io and things like that. Um, also, I would check all the social media sites. So if you want your particular business name on Twitter or on Facebook, I would check to see if they're out there first. What else do you want to add to this, James? You know, does it does it make sense to consult with a somebody who's knowledgeable about marketing? I know you've gone down that route as well. Um, is that something you would say, no, wait until you kind of figure out what it is that you're going to be doing? Or that, that should be a discussion that you have really from the start. Well, I, okay, I don't know. I think if you, if you sit down and you were to talk to a marketing person, they pro- would probably all say do it from the beginning. But um, how many of those marketing folks had started their own business would be a, a way that I would filter out that advice. Um, for, for me personally, I don't, you'll have to tell me what your experience is, James. Um, but my, personally, I think it comes down to the type of business, how much business you're getting without doing any elaborate marketing or, or putting in a significant amount of effort into marketing. Um, some folks are just going to get more business than others for one reason or another. I don't know. They know more people. Uh, they're more exposed. They, their name is bigger. They wrote a book, whatever. There are lots of ways to, to get out there. And, and some people have that before they ever start their business. So people come to them about it. Maybe they have an open source project and, and people came to them to, to do business because of that. Uh, the marketing road is one that I think it comes down to, do you need more business? How big do you want to grow your business? Because a lot of people, James, as you know, they they just want to do work for themselves. They don't ever want to have employees. They don't want to get bigger than you know, doing the service that they're doing, um, and they're happy where they are, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, I guess it does depend on where you want to go with it. Um, and maybe this is, a, this is a subject for another podcast, but I think, you know, marketing yourself, there's obviously a lot of stuff you can, you can do, right? Um, you could do a podcast. You could do a podcast. <laughs> you could have a series of displays about home safety. I, but, I, you know, I think it's like um, if, if, you, if you're not sure about what it is that you do and you're just kind of taking all work, I think that's kind of – it's kind of weak sauce, right? And I think it's going to kind of limit the quality of clients you can get. And, again, this is probably a whole different conversation. I would – you know, if, if you have somebody who's like – Hey, I'm really good at marketing and I think I've got some great ideas for you and they want to talk to you. Like, don't turn them down. Uh, but I don't know that it's absolutely necessary. Like you said, you know, if you've got great word of mouth already and you've got a list of people that are like, you know, hey, we made a door. Yeah, they yeah. they know you, they know your work. You, you know, you don't really need it, I guess. Um uh, I, it's not an absolute necessity. Yeah. I, I think you had a few good points there as, as well about what type of work is coming to you and what you're accepting. I think it's very, very natural when you get started to accept any work that comes to you. Um, and there are times in business where you are going to want to accept whatever work comes to you because of the economy or because of, uh, you know, just changes or, or whatever, um, that, that happens from time to time. If you're trying to focus on a particular niche, if you're trying to focus on having a particular kind of client client, that can be something that weighs against you, I guess. Right. right, but it's very natural. I think it, it happens to everybody, and I think over time you figure out who are good clients and who are bad clients, and which ones you want to have and which ones you don't. Yeah, and again, maybe this is an entirely different subject about you know once you've once you've made the decision to leap off of the SS stable employment into the wild ocean of your own thing, you know how much how much time have you spent thinking about what it is that you're going to be offering. And, you know, how, how are you going to sell that to other people? Because at that point, you don't, you don't have somebody that's going to hand you your paycheck 
not only do you have to earn it by doing the work, you have to find people that are willing to engage with you to give you the work. That's right. And sometimes you don't know what you're selling until after you've sold it. And I know that sounds totally ridiculous to a lot of people. And I know when I was working, uh, when I was working for other folks as an employee and, um, these sales guys would come in and say, okay, we sold blah, blah, blah. And now you got to go write it. it. You were like, wait a minute, you, <laughs> you should have known in advance that we can't do that. And that it'll take us nine months and you've promised them three months. The thing is when you get out there and you start selling your services, what you say and what you describe your business as, um, is it may be very different from what someone else hears. And it takes some time to figure out what it is you're actually selling and what it is somebody else is buying. And sometimes what you sell somebody and what they buy are two completely different things and you don't find it out until later. And I think that's one of those things that comes with experience, uh, learning how to be very clear in what it is you're selling and what it is that you're willing to do for, for another person. I, I Once again, I think we're getting off the, the rails a little bit here maybe. But, a little bit. Um, but anyway, things to do when you get started, yeah, try to figure out what it is you're, you're selling, what services you're selling, but understand that that could completely change very quickly. It's okay to change. Yeah, and, and you're going to have to in order to survive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and you're going to want to set up a website most likely. There are plenty of places to do that. Frankly, I think too many software engineers go out and write their own thing. There are some really good tools out there. And, I mean, even even what are some of these new ones? Is it Wix? Is that one of them? Um there, there are a couple really cool bootstrappy looking uh, build your own site and you can get your domain name there and hosting there and everything else. And this is an area where, you know, for me personally, I say, you know, make sure the message is right, but get it out quick. Yeah. And, you know, the beautiful thing, beautiful thing about having a website is if you got it wrong, you can change it. That's right. That's right. The branding uh, is another part of this. So like getting a logo, if you want a logo for your company, one thing that you told me about James, I believe is logo tournament. And I've gotten a lot of logos done there for less expense than going to a graphic artist. Yeah. Uh, um, 99 designs, also a good resource. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. Yeah. But, um, that can be a great way to start. And remember, you can always have somebody come back in later with whatever that logo is and make you different versions of it or, um, change it around and, and tweak it and make it look a little bit better. Um, yeah, I wouldn't spend a lot of time doing things like trademarks in the beginning, yeah. uh, registering for trademarks because you don't know if you're even going to make any money or how long this thing's going to last. It's really exciting to think about registering those things, a service mark or a trademark. But um, there are ways to deal with that too, and you'll have to consult with a uh, lawyer to make sure you understand that. But I think you can just put the TM on something and that's enough to protect you provided no one else has already used that mark um, for, for a good deal of time. Um, same thing with the SM, but once again, that's something to talk to a, a lawyer about. Yep. But yeah, I mean, those are the, the top things that I would say when you're getting started, the things that you need to think about are things that you need to do. One thing that I found is that there is not a complete list for this out on the web and every step that you take, you probably find out more things that you need to do. Um, and that's just the, the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, I, I think that the top, top thing we could tell you is, you know, talk to a lawyer, talk to an accountant and get professional advice about any kind of incorporation, any kind of business registration. You, you, I think it's, it's well worth the money to pay, to pay an expert and instead of paying hundreds of dollars and making a mistake. Yeah. And they, they've done it a million times. They won't make the mistakes. They'll help make sure that you have things in, in the right place. Cause you're paying them to, to help you do it right and protect yeah. you. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. Well, I don't know. For me, that kind of does it. What do you think, James? I think it's time to get some eggnog. <laughs> Excellent. Have you got eggnog over there? We have some eggnog downstairs. It's our, the one time of year where we're like, it's time to drink a little bit of eggnog. That's cool. I've got a magic hat number nine here, and it is empty. So <laughs> it's time to get another one. Um, once again, uh, my name is Paul Merrill from Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing Services. Our mission is to rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. Find us on the web at BeauftFairmont.com. James, you want to talk about Code Providence? Yep, Code Providence. It's a software consultancy. I help people write software that makes a big impact. Thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate your time. We really would love to hear your feedback. I'm at D. Paul Merrill on Twitter. James is at J.D. Jeffers. The, this podcast has a website, reflectionasaservice.com. We're also on Twitter at ReflectionAAS. Um, we look forward to hearing from your, your feedback. Review us on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'd love to hear from you. And come out to some of the things I mentioned. I'd love to meet some folks in the area, um, either at the Triangle Test Automated Automation Users Group uh, on the 27th of January. You can find that on meetup.com or in March at the Tisca Conference. It's only 100 bucks, and it's in Chapel Hill, and it is a terrific, terrific conference about testing. Thank you so much, and have a good day.